Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and each week I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. The Wendigo, the Wendigo, its eyes are ice and indigo, its blood is rank and yellowish, its voice is hoarse and bellowish, its tentacles are slithery and scummy, slimy, leathery, its lips are hungry, blubbery, and smacky, sucky, rubbery. The Wendigo, the Wendigo, I saw it just a friend ago. Last night it lurked in Canada. Tonight it's on your veranda. As you are lolling hammock-wise, it contemplates you stomach-wise. You loll, it contemplates it lollops. The rest is merely gulps and gollops. That's The Wendigo by Ogden Nash. Algernon Blackwood, one of the most prolific and skilled writers of horror and ghost stories in the early 1900s, was a true swashbuckling author, rather than so many others who only wrote of strange tales and legends. Blackwood, like his lonely but fundamentally optimistic protagonist, was a combination of mystic and outdoorsman. When he wasn't steeping himself in occultism, including Rosicrucianism or Buddhism, he was likely to be skiing or mountain climbing. Blackwood was a member of one of the factions of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Yes, the Order of the Golden Dawn, made infamous by Aleister Crowley and Arthur Mackin. One of Blackwood's most well-known works is undoubtedly a novella titled The Wendigo, Published in 1910, it was based on Blackwood's experiences hunting in the backwoods of Canada. A group of men deep in the northern wilderness are visited by a terrifying creature from Native American legends. Tonight we will be discussing one of the most fear-inspiring legends for anyone who knows the tale and has spent time on the frozen woods of the North Country. If you haven't heard of this creature before, don't worry, you'll never forget it after tonight. So first and foremost, folks, I just want to say thank you to everyone who's listening to this program, as always, I really want to thank everyone for all the touching, kind comments and people reaching out to me to offer their help and support uh, with the issues that we've been dealing with with William. For those of you who don't know, dogs uh, of the shape of William, like a dachshund or similar, because of their shape, it puts a lot of strain on their spine and on their back. So unfortunately, what's happened in William's case is that he's had spinal compression, where his spinal cord has been compressed, and it caused him to lose the feeling and the loss of his back legs, uh, which at that point, he couldn't control anything. He can't control his bladder or anything else. Now, he has had successful surgery on his spine to reduce that pressure. He's doing well. He's at home. However, at this point, we still have to take him to the vet daily to uh, have him drained. And we also have to do physio with him. So this is going to be an ongoing thing for several weeks. And yes, it's challenging. But, you know, what do you do for those that you love? Whether they're humans or animals, you've got to look after those who look after you. And William's always been here when I needed him. And I took a commitment when I got William that I would take care of him and I would do everything that I could in my power to make sure that he had a good life. So... You know, we've, we've got to do this. He's part of our family. To me, he's a son. And again, just thank you everyone so much for reaching out and supporting me. It's not been easy to be away from the programs. Uh, I can assure you it's been very odd for me not to be researching, not to be sticking to my pattern of researching, preparing notes, recording and editing the programs. I miss interacting with everyone. I miss interacting with people on social media and elsewhere. So thank you so much for everyone who supported me. Now, tonight we're going to do it a bit different because it's been two weeks. You know, basically I missed the last two programs. I'm going to give you a bumper crop of 
news of the dam tonight. So I'll be giving you double the stories. So you'll get six stories. I've tried to keep them half halfway short so we don't have a massive overrun. And then we'll get into the Wendigo. Uh, it's, it's really a fascinating piece of myth and legend of North America. And who knows, you know, there could definitely be more to it than meets the eye. Now, with that all being said, and again, thank you so much, everyone, for your support support and understanding. It's meant the world to me. Just want to give some shout-outs, you know, again, to you, the listeners. Just thank you so much for your patience and support in this time. It's been very difficult for me. Uh, there have been many days where I haven't got much sleep, and I've not been in a good state emotionally because I've been so worried about William. So thank you so much for just having patience. Uh, thank you, as always, to Eddie and his family in California and their support to Chris and Max and Chris's family in Illinois, to the amazing Nicole and Noel at the Quite Unusual Podcast. Thank you so much for reaching out constantly to make sure that we're okay. And uh, I still owe you that Heaven's Gate story that I was telling you about, so I'll make sure to get it out to you as soon as I can. Scott and Matt at the Old 77, again, thank you so much, uh, both of you, for keeping in touch and making sure I'm okay and uh, offering to help if you could. It means the world to me. To Adriana and Nico in Texas, again, thank you so much for being in touch, making sure I'm okay. Uh, the Fidianga Tribe, to Riaz at uh, Wicked Apparel. Riaz, uh, I'm really proud of you and how far you've come with your business already, so keep it up, my friend. To my Montana family. And last, and of course not least, to Harry and Lisa in North Carolina. And anyone else listening to my voice, especially to the listeners in France. So thank you so much, everyone. Now, with all of that out of the way, it's been quite busy the last few weeks as well in the world that we live in as far as, you know, paranormal, unexplained oddities. There's been a whole heck of a lot going on, and unfortunately, I've not been able to cover it as I would normally like to, and I haven't been able to keep up with all of it as much as I would normally like to. I did find it quite a synchronicity that um, I follow Richard Dolan, and for those of you who don't know, Richard Dolan is a... Uh, he, he's in the forefront of the UFO community at this present time. And on his Instagram page today, uh, I think it was posted yesterday, but I saw it today, he's going to be covering in very short form the case of Maurice Moss uh, 1965 that I covered over in the last program. So, you know, we'll look to see how thorough Richard is. He's always very good at digging up things that I haven't heard of before. And that will be quite interesting. Uh, it's not up yet, but it will be coming up in the next few days. And I'll, I might just post a link on the show's website, you know, over on the paranormalsun.com. Uh, I'm just thinking about how I can include it in the show. But uh, as always, Richard is very good at, uh, you know, investigating and bringing new light to a lot of these older cases. So I look forward to hearing about that. Now, in other news, uh, as I say, folks, there's been a lot going on. You several, you know, several of you have got a hold of me to just ask me about the Pentagon um, admissions about, you know, that they basically said that those craft that they captured uh, in the fighter fighter jet uh, footage, you know, was not of this earth, and so on and so forth. And there is a bit going on around that, and I'm going to cover a little bit of it tonight. But uh, it's definitely a pretty in-depth story right now. Like I say, folks, there is a lot going on. Blink and you'd miss it, basically. So for those of you who are new to the program, uh, each week I 
give you the news of the damned. Now, the news of the damned is an homage to Charles Fort, who's one of my major influences in this world of the paranormal, the unexplained, the strange and mysterious. And Charles Fort was one of the first people that actually cataloged and coalesced all of these articles from around the world and put them in books so that people could, you know, look at some of these cases, get an understanding of some of these phenomenon that were going on, and just to show people that the world isn't all it's cracked up to be. There's a lot going on that you may not hear about on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, Mr. Fort always referred to anything in this field that was excluded or ignored by mainstream science as damned data, therefore the news of the damned. And tonight you get a bumper crop. Usually I give you around three articles, but tonight I've got six. I have tried to keep them a little bit shorter, so hopefully you don't get overloaded. And one of the things about the news of the damn folks, you will always find links to the articles in the show notes. And tonight is no exception. So the first one here is from coasttocoast.com. And this one is odd cattle mutilation reported in Oregon. Now, again, for those of you who don't know a lot about cattle mutilation, it's been going on at least since the early to mid-70s, and it tends to be heavily focused in the Midwest and the Pacific Northwest. So most of the articles on Coast to Coast are bylined by Tim Banal, who's the, uh, the webpage you know, manager, webpage guru. And this one is from Tim. And it says, authorities in Oregon are investigating a rather curious cattle mutilation case in which the perpetrator may have left behind a critical clue. The puzzling incident reportedly occurred on a ranch near the community of Fossil late last month when a black Angus cow was discovered with its tongue and genitals removed with seemingly surgical precision and its reproductive organs had also been taken. Strangely, the dead animal was discovered with its front legs tucked underneath its body. She died in a position she couldn't have gotten into by herself, observed ranch owner David Hunt. I don't have any kind of logical explanation for it. Sheriff's Deputy Jeremiah Holmes, who is investigating the case, declared that there was definitely foul play involved in this animal's death. Although there initially appeared to be not significant signs of trespassing on the ranch where the killing occurred, Holmes indicated that authorities later found a partial boot print that appears to have come from the person who committed the nefarious deed. It remains to be seen whether or not the impression will yield any breakthroughs in the case, but undoubtedly a better clue than most other cattle mutilation incidents are afforded. To that end, the late July case follows an eerily similar incident from this past March, as well as a highly publicized event which occurred in the summer of last year, wherein five bulls were mutilated under mysterious circumstances which have yet to be explained. In light of this series of unexplained and peculiar cattle deaths throughout the state over the last year, authorities are now considering forming a special task force to look into the matter and hopefully find the culprit behind the troubling slayings. Now, folks, for those of you who know about cattle mutilations, there are many theories about what is causing it. One of the theories that skeptics like to point out is they like to say, oh, it's a satanic cult that's killing animals. And... If you look into all of these cases, folks, number one, many of the cases and many of the mutilations, the way that they're done are either at the cutting edge or beyond the ability of, you know, what we know about in the medical field as far as in public hospitals, etc. Now, maybe there's something going on behind the scenes that the military knows about that we can't access as a free society. 
However, this is not the type of thing that a bunch of people in black hoods and uh, Pantera t-shirts uh, with a pocket knife are going to go out in the field and do. But I do find this quite interesting that there's a boot print involved because generally with these, there's no sign of anyone walking in and around it. So this is quite interesting. And that ties into one of the other theories, which is that the military is heavily involved in this. So we shall see if there is more to this story, and I'll keep an eye on it for you. Now, the next story here is quite an interesting one. Now, the lottery in my country uh, tonight will be drawn, and it's either 36 or $38 million. So maybe, just maybe, if I got all of that money, maybe I would be up for this next article. So this one is also from Coast to Coast, and this one is titled Ireland's Most Haunted House Up for Sale. Now, this was published on July the 29th. This is also from Tim Bunnell. So I've heard of this place before, folks. Uh, many of the listeners in the, in the UK would have heard of Loftus Hall. It is quite a haunted uh, site. It's got a lot of stories and a lot of reported sightings and instances that have gone on at this mansion. So I'll cover it over here for you. It says, a massive mansion in Ireland, which boasts the reputation of being the country's most haunted house, and legend has it was once visited by the devil himself, has reportedly gone on the market. Known as Loftus Hall, the 22-bedroom estate was built on the ruins of a previous manor, Richmond Hall, that stretched back to the 1300s. In light of that, as one can imagine, the location has a rich history attached to it, specifically of a spooky nature. Easily the most infamous tale attached to the site is an incident said to have occurred around 1775, when a ship arrived on the shore outside the mansion during a storm and a mysterious stranger seeking shelter emerged. Welcomed into the home by the family staying there at the time, the man quickly endeared himself to the group, specifically a young lady named Anne. While the two were playing cards together one evening, she bent down to pick up a drop card and noticed that the man possessed cloven hooves instead of feet. Stunned by what she saw, the story goes, Anne screamed in fright and the stranger revealed that he was in fact the devil before vanishing in a burst of flames. The young woman subsequently became severely traumatized by the incident and suffered a mental breakdown, which led her family to lock her away inside the mansion. In keeping with all good ghost stories, it is said that the home wound up being plagued by eerie paranormal activity ever since Anne passed away. Loftus Hall passed through the hands of various owners over the decades and centuries after that and was eventually purchased in 2011 by Aidan Quigley, who turned the site into a supernatural attraction which hosts ghost tours and events. After nine years of presiding over the property, he has decided to put the location up for sale with an asking price of around $3 million. Yeah, so I could, I could swing that. That's not too bad. Quigley, who is selling the estate on his own, mused that I'm not even a chapter. I'm a footnote in its history, and soon someone else will come along to preside over the notoriously haunted site. Quite interesting, folks. If you haven't heard of Loftus Hall, have a look at that. Someday down the road, I would like to cover over some of the haunted properties in the UK. Again, folks, the the show catalog for episodes is in the hundreds. So uh, look, bear with me. It takes a while to get through this stuff. But at some point, I will definitely get around to that. And Loftus Hall is right up there in the top 10 in the UK for haunted sites. Now, the next one here, folks, is something that I've been covering in, in an ongoing uh, basis on the show, and that is about Forrest Venn's treasure. 
So here is an article from Coast to Coast as well, and it's got some information from the man himself from Forrest Fenn. For those of you who are new to the story, Forrest Fenn is an art dealer who was dying of cancer about 10 years ago. I uh, thought he was dying of cancer, went into the wilderness and buried a treasure and then released clues on how to get to this treasure. And earlier in this year, someone claimed the treasure and it's been a bit of an ongoing uncertainty in the field. Was it actually claimed? Was it not publicity? Did the person who claimed it have a connection to Forrest Fenn, so on and so forth? So I'll just give you a brief synopsis so you got an understanding. Now, this article was from the 27th of July, so I'm about a week and a bit out. So sorry for that, folks. But again, I've just had a lot on with William. So this one says, Forrest Fenn reveals his treasure was hidden in Wyoming. Treasure hunters still smarting over the unsatisfying conclusion to the search for Forrest Fenn's riches received something of a respite last week when the eccentric art dealer revealed that the cache of gold and jewels had been hidden in the state of Wyoming. Since the decade-long quest came to an end in early June, by way of a vague announcement that someone had solved the mystery, skepticism has swirled around the surprising news, with several significant questions remaining unanswered. And as I said, folks, I'm one of those people who is a bit skeptical. Although Fenn responded to those who doubted the veracity of the story by releasing pictures of the allegedly unearthed treasure chest, countless individuals who spent a considerable amount of time and money on the hunt still yearned to know where he had hidden the riches since that would provide them with some indication of whether or not they were on the right track. The mercurial art dealer finally acknowledged those misgivings in a statement released last Wednesday. When the finder found and retrieved the treasure, Fenn wrote, other searchers wondered how close they had been to the right spot, noting that he has, so far, adhered to the wishes of the person who discovered the riches and kept both their identity as well as the location of the cash secret. The man behind the infamous hunt went on to say that, the finder understands how important some closure is for many searchers, so today he agreed that we should reveal that the treasure was found in Wyoming. Fenn also reiterated an earlier point by once again emphatically stating that the treasure had not moved in the 10 years since I left it there on the ground and walked away. The state location revelation is a fairly significant clue as it eliminates an enormous swath of potential spots in New Mexico, Colorado, and Montana, which had been targeted by innumerable searchers over the years. And, as one can imagine, the enlightening insight has led many treasure hunters to revisit the riddle, which purportedly led to the cache to see if they can now figure out the peculiar treasure map. However, since there is presumably nothing left in the location where the treasure had been hidden, confirming that they are the second person to solve the hunt will likely prove to be a daunting and rather maddening task. That is, of course, unless Fenn or the Finder eventually decide to reveal the precise location, the public, and finally put an end to the mystery which continues to surround the controversial treasure. Now, folks, again, it's just quite interesting. It's just one of those that, uh, you know... The jury is still out on this. I think that up until the time comes that maybe some of these items come up for auction, something like that, there's always going to be a doubt around the veracity of this, you know, treasure that the treasure's been solved, you know, it's been found, etc. So watch this space, folks. I will continue to update you as we go. So the next one here, folks, is a bit of an older article. But it's on one of the topics that I've been covering on an ongoing basis, which is the Pentagon UFO footage uh, where the aircraft carriers have 
encountered UFOs multiple times at sea. So this one was from July the 24th. And again, uh, apologies, I missed it while the show's been on a bit of a hiatus. And this is from Fox 6 from Milwaukee. So uh, as always, I'll have a link in the show notes, but from Fox News. And it says, not made on this earth. Top secret Pentagon UFO task force reportedly expected to reveal some findings. So this was published on July the 24th. And it says, Washington, according to a recent report from the New York Times, a top secret Pentagon program has been conducting classified briefings for over a decade, analyzing various encounters between military craft and unidentified aerial vehicles. According to the Times, the Pentagon stated that the program was disbanded, but a Senate committee report last month revealed spending on a program called the Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Task Force. Now, for those of you who don't know, UAP is the new military equivalent buzzword of UFO. It was reported in late June that U.S. Senator Marco Rubio had requested a detailed analysis of the task force findings. The report stated that the committee supports the efforts of the task force to collect and standardize data regarding, quote, unidentified aerial phenomena, as well as their links to foreign governments and potential threats, unquote. Now the New York Times is reporting that the secretive task force is expected to release new and alarming findings that may involve vehicles made of materials not from this planet. Astrophysicist and former consultant for the UFO program since 2007, Eric W. Davis, told the Times that he gave a classified briefing to the Defense Department agency as early as March regarding, quote, off-world vehicles not made on this earth, unquote. Over the years, the federal government has released footage of military encounters with unidentified aerial phenomenon. In April, the Pentagon declassified videos from 2004 and 2015 that showed saucer-looking objects. So that's that's what I've been covering on an ongoing basis, folks. DOD is releasing the videos in order to clear up any misconceptions by the public on whether or not the footage that had been circulating was real, or whether or not there is more to the videos, the agency said in a statement released along with the clips. The aerial phenomenon observed in the videos remains characterized as unidentified. In September, the U.S. Navy acknowledged that three UFO videos that were released by former Blink-182 singer Tom DeLonge and published by the New York Times were of real unidentified objects. The Navy considers the phenomenon contained, depicted in those three videos, as unidentified, Navy spokesman John Gratisher told The Black Vault, a website dedicated to declassified government documents. Now that's a good site, folks. Uh, The Black Vault is excellent in their coverage and a lot of the information that's there on the website. The videos in question, known as FLIR1, Gimbal, and GoFast, were originally released to the New York Times and to, the, and to the Stars Academy of Arts and Science, TTSA, in December 2017. Fox News reported that the Pentagon had secretly set up a program to investigate UFOs at the request of former Senator Harry Reid of Nevada. The first video of the unidentified object was taken on November 14, 2004, and shot by the F-18's gun camera. The second video was taken on January 21, 2015, and shows another aerial vehicle with pilots commenting on how strange it is. The third video was also taken on January 21, 2015, but it is unclear whether the third video was of the same object or a different one. In May 2019, the Pentagon also admitted that it still investigates reports of UFOs or UAPs in a statement that a former UK defense official called a bombshell revelation, 
according to a New York Post report. A Department of Defense spokesman told the Post in a statement that a secret government initiative called the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program did pursue research and investigation into unidentified aerial phenomenon. Even though the DOD said it shut down the ATIP in 2012, spokesman Christopher Sherwood acknowledged that the department still investigates claimed sightings of alien spacecraft, the Post reported. The department will continue to investigate, through normal procedures, reports of unidentified aircraft encountered by U.S. military aviators in order to ensure defense of the homeland and protection against strategic surprise by our nation's adversaries. Now look, folks, there's a lot to unpack there. So these stories about, you know, the there are people in the military, there are people in the Pentagon that want to release some of this information and admit that some of these craft are not from this earth go back many, many years. I mean, for me in the mid-90s, I remember listening on Art Bell and he had these purported parts of crashed recovered spacecraft that had been sent to him and he called them arts parts and they had a very weird honeycomb type makeup with bismuth and aluminium and it was you know something that no one had ever seen built on this earth uh, as in the configuration the percentages of the different metals and the theory at that time and the theory now still with many of the people who know about this, uh, consider that this might be the way that the metal has to be formed to have an anti-gravitational effect. So in other words, for these craft to levitate without using rotors like a helicopter or uh, an engine. So if you can levitate a large craft, all you would have to do then is propel it. So yeah, it's a very interesting one, folks. I'm sure there are newer articles on this, and I'll be keeping an eye on it. And I'll make sure to get some more information posted up for you as soon as it breaks. Now, the last one here, folks, is quite close to home for me. And this one was in our national newspaper here. So, again, we've got a lot of small newspapers, but we've only really got one large national newspaper. And this one is from the New Zealand Herald. And this was published on the 3rd of August. And this one is titled UFO over Pororua. Mysterious hovering lights stun locals. So Pororua is a suburb of our capital city, Wellington, which is about eight hours drive from, from me. It was in the early hours in Pororua when Theodora Fa'afia left home and spotted three lights hovering in the dark skies above the town. Fa'afia was with her cousin, and they both spotted the lights and wondered what it was. She filmed them on her phone for a few seconds, then posted on the local group to see if anyone knew what they could be. So, as I was leaving home this morning, we spotted these three big lights just hovering over Pororua City. Anyone have a clue what it could be, she wrote? One person in the comments said they saw it too, but no one had a definitive theory on what the lights were. Fa'afia says she has no idea what the lights could be. I just thought it was strange, and so did my cousin, because it wasn't plain lights or anything. It was just still in the sky, she told the Herald. We didn't hang around as I had to drop my cousins off to town for work. So we just continued to drive and kept watching it as we drove till it was out of our sight. By the time we got back to Pororua, it was daylight. One person in the comments suggested that they are searchlights. Looking down on your video and see the three big searchlights, the Facebook user commented. Another local suggested the lights could not be related to army planes. She had could be related to army planes she had seen flying over on Thursday. Another person believes the lights are just a moon behind the clouds. 
Well, look, folks, unlike the U.S., we have a very small military here in New Zealand. We don't have a large air force, and we don't have a lot of ongoing air force activity. So we do have some large reconnaissance planes and long-distance planes, but nothing like this that kind of hovers, moves slowly, and is so massive. So look, it is an interesting one. And again, it just goes to show that we definitely have them here. Now, there is video in the article. So, you know, uh, just you can Google it on YouTube or you can just follow the link in the article. And as always, there'll be a link in the show notes. Now, I'm sure you're wondering what I think, folks. Um, the footage is quite herky-jerky. She's moving her phone around a lot. It does make it quite difficult to look for things in the video. You do definitely see the three large lights in the sky. Unfortunately, she also hasn't shot the video in uh, pan type, uh, you know, she's just kept her phone upright, which makes it even more difficult to kind of view it. Uh, it could potentially be floodlights, spotlights from the ground. Now, I couldn't see those spotlights, but again, you know, it's a quite short clip. It's only about 20 or 30 seconds, and it's not the highest quality. So, you know, as always, I keep my mind open to these things, and there are lots and lots of UFO sightings in New Zealand, as I say. But yeah, it's definitely worth going over there and just having a quick check, especially for some of you who wonder what goes on in New Zealand and how many cases we have and how many sightings. And our last article of this bumper crop of the news of the damned is also about a UFO. This one, a little bit better footage. Now, this one is again from coasttocoastam.com. And this one is titled, Watch, UFO Spotted in Background of NBC Nightly News Segment. Now, this was published on August the 7th, 2020, and again, this is from Tim Banal. So it says, an attentive viewer watching NBC Nightly News earlier this week spotted a curious cylindrical object zipping across the sky in the background of a segment. The intriguing moment reportedly occurred during Monday night's broadcast as the program was detailing how the Navajo Nation has been struggling with a water crisis at the same time that their community is being ravaged by the coronavirus pandemic. As reporter Cynthia McFadden discusses these issues, a Native American woman is shown playing a drum with two fairly large white clouds in the sky behind her. The scene takes a strange turn when a peculiar white object suddenly emerges from one of the clouds, flies in a straight line through the clear blue sky, and then vanishes behind the other cloud. Were it not for a viewer who spotted the strange scene and reported it to MUFON, the proverbial UFO sighting likely would have gone unnoticed by the world at large, as it lasted only a few seconds. While some imaginative online observers have suggested that the object was headed towards Area 51, as Navajo Nation is approximately 375 miles from the notorious military base, which makes such an assumption something of a stretch. So, in a, you know, they're saying it's quite a distance from Area 51. Of course, the true mystery is what the nature of the object is, not where it is going. To that end, while some UFO enthusiasts have argued that the anomaly is a visitor from another world, more skeptical viewers have offered up the prosaic possibility that the, quote, alien craft, unquote, is merely an airplane that looks exotic due to the angle of the shot and how far away it is flying. With that in mind, what's your take on the puzzling scene? So I've had a look at this, folks, and it's definitely ovaloid shaped to me. It doesn't look like an aircraft. It's the same color as the clouds. If it wasn't moving so fast, you would almost think it was a 
piece of a cloud, but it's moving way too fast to be a cloud in in my humble opinion. So it's quite an interesting one. And again, I'll have a link in the show notes. Do yourself a favor. If you haven't already, go over there and check out that video. And that is the news of the dam for this program. I hope that you've enjoyed those articles. Again, give you a bit of a bumper crop to get back into the flow of things as I continue with the show moving forward. Now, also, don't forget, folks, uh, you can go and follow the program on Instagram. So I've got a page on Instagram. I've got a Facebook group. You can go over to the Paranormal Sun website. That's also a real good piece of information for you. You can go on there. You can follow the show. You can read the blog posts and some of the photos I post over there. And you'll also, you can sign up with your email, and then I believe you will get an email notification when I post something new over there. So again, with that, folks, thank you for all the support. And now on to the main topic. The Wendigo was gaunt to the point of emaciation. Its desiccated skin pulled tautly over its bones. With its bones pushing out against its skin, its complexion the ash gray of death, and its eyes pushed back deep into their sockets. The Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton, recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody. Its body was unclean and suffering from separations of the flesh, giving off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition, of death and corruption. Basil Johnson, Ojibwe teacher and scholar, Ontario, Canada. What you've just heard is a description from Kathy Weiser's book, Legends of America. In the north woods of Minnesota, the forest of the Great Lakes region, and the central regions of Canada is said to live a malevolent being called a Wendigo, also spelled Wendigo. This creature may appear as a monster with some characteristics of a human, or as a spirit who has possessed a human being and made them become monstrous. It is historically associated with cannibalism, murder, insatiable greed, and the cultural taboos against such behaviors. Known by several names, Wendigo, Wittigo, Wittiko, and Weetigo. Each of them roughly translates to the evil spirit that devours mankind. Well, my friends, any of you who have spent any time in the cold, frozen forests or northern climes in the middle of winter, I'm sure among the other things, besides just trying to keep yourself warm in the icy, windy, snowy, cold conditions, I'm sure you may also have had a feeling that you weren't alone. Maybe you heard sounds in the woods. Maybe it was wolves. Maybe it was bears. Maybe it was something else. However, after you hear the tales of the Wendigo, I'm sure that the next time you're out there, you'll keep a little better eye of what's going on around you, what may be watching you from the woods. This is definitely one of the most terrifying myths from American Indian folklore. This creature has long been known among the Algonquin, Ojibwe, Eastern Cree, Salto, West Main Swampy Cree, Nescapi, and Innu peoples who have described them as giants, many times larger than human beings. Although descriptions can vary somewhat, common to all these cultures is the view that the Wendigo is a malevolent, cannibalistic, supernatural being that is strongly associated with winter, the north, coldness, famine, and starvation.
The Algonquin legend describes the creature as a giant with a heart of ice. Sometimes it is thought to be made entirely of ice. Its body is skeletal and deformed, with missing lips and toes. The Ojibwe describe it thusly. It was a large creature as tall as a tree, with a lipless mouth and jagged teeth. Its breath was a strange hiss, its footprints full of blood, and it ate any man, woman, or child who ventured into its territory. And those were the lucky ones. Sometimes the Wendigo chose to possess a person instead, and then the luckless individual became a Wendigo himself, hunting down those who he had loved and feasting upon their flesh. According to the legends, a Wendigo is created whenever a human resorts to cannibalism to survive. In the past, this occurred more often when Indians and settlers found themselves stranded in the bitter snow and ice of the North Woods. Sometimes stranded for days, any survivors might have felt compelled to cannibalize the dead in order to survive. Other versions of the legend cite that humans who displayed extreme greed, gluttony, and excess may also be possessed by a Wendigo. Thus, the myth served as a method of encouraging cooperation and moderation. According to legend, the Wendigo could be one of two things. The first possibility is that it's a physical being, a hideous monster that stalks the northern woods, desperate to sate its unfathomable hunger. Different stories described it differently. Sometimes it had the head of a stag, and other times it was closer to a monstrous human, emaciated from constantly starving. It was sometimes said to grow in proportion to the size of the meal it had just consumed, making it impossible for the beast to ever eat its fill. In other stories, a Wendigo is a malevolent spirit that takes control of men's bodies, cursing them with an incurable need to consume human flesh. It was said that this spirit could possess a person who was overcome with selfishness or greed, leading them to acts of cannibalism. Native American versions of the creature speak of a gigantic spirit over 15 feet tall, that had once been human, but had been transformed into a creature by the use of magic. Though all of the descriptions of the creature vary slightly, the Wendigo is generally said to have glowing eyes, long yellowed fangs, terrible claws, and overly long tongues. Sometimes they are described as having sallow, yellowish skin, and other times depicted to be covered with matted hair. The creature is said to have a number of skills and powers, including stealth, is a near-perfect hunter, knows and uses every inch of its territory, and can control the weather through the use of its dark magic. They are also portrayed as simultaneously gluttonous and emaciated from starvation. Wendigos are said to be cursed to wander the land, eternally seeking to fulfill their voracious appetite for human flesh, and legend said if there is nothing left to eat, it starves to death. The legend lends its name to the disputed modern medical term Wendigo psychosis, which is considered by some psychi psychiatrists to be a syndrome that creates an intensive craving for human flesh and a fear of becoming a cannibal. Ironically, this psychosis is said to occur within people living around the Great Lakes of Canada and the U.S. Wendigo psychosis usually develops in the winter in individuals who are isolated by heavy snow for long periods. The initial symptoms are poor appetite, nausea, and vomiting. Subsequently, the individual develops a, a delusion of being transformed into a Wendigo monster. People who have Wendigo, Wendigo psychosis increasingly see others around them as being edible. At the same time, 
They have an exaggerated fear of becoming cannibals. The most common response when a person showed signs of Wendigo psychosis was a curing attempt by traditional native healers. In cases of the past, if these attempts failed, and if the possessed person began either to threaten those around them or to act violently or antisocially, they were executed. There have been reports regarding this psychosis dating back several hundred years. So if you encounter a Wendigo, what can you expect to face? Stories tell us that a Wendigo is almost impossible to escape. They are relentless in their pursuit of food and unaffected by the punishing elements. On their home turf, the unforgiving cold and the forests of the north, you're pretty much out of luck. Some sources say you're no better off if you make it to shelter since the Wendigo has no trouble opening doors. Wherever you go, the creature will follow, raking at you with grasping claws, tirelessly pursuing the despairing hope that you will be the final that finally gives them satisfaction. Oh, it's also worth mentioning that even if you do escape, you'll probably lose your mind. There really isn't such a thing as a glass is half full Wendigo encounter. Different versions of the Wendigo legend say different things about his speed and agility. Some claim he is unusually fast and can endure walking for long periods of time, even in harsh winter conditions. Others say he walks in a more haggard manner, as if he is falling apart. But speed wouldn't be a necessary skill for a monster of this nature. Unlike other terrifying carnivores, the Wendigo doesn't rely on pursuing his prey in order to capture and eat it. Rather, one of his sad traits is the ability to mimic human voices. He uses his skill to lure people in and draw them away from civilization. Once they're isolated in the desolate depths of the wilderness, he feasts on them. A 1661 Jesuit relations document stated that what caused us greater concern was the intelligence that met us upon entering the lake, namely that the men deputed by our conductor for the purpose of summoning the nations to the North Sea and assigning them a rendezvous where they were to await our coming had met their death the previous winter in a very strange manner. Those poor men, according to the report given us, were seized with an ailment unknown to us but not very unusual among the people we were seeking. They are afflicted with neither lunacy, hypochondria, nor frenzy, but have a combination of all these species of disease, which affects their imaginations and causes them a more than canine hunger. This makes them so ravenous for human flesh that they pounce upon women, children, and even upon other men, like veritable werewolves, and devour them voraciously, without being able to appease or glut their appetite ever seeking fresh prey, and the more greedily, the more they eat. This ailment attacked our deputies, and as death is the sole remedy among those simple people for checking such acts of murder, they were slain in order to stay the course of their madness. The most famed and often recounted documented case occurred in 1878, when a Plains Cree trapper from Alberta named Swift Runner suffered one of the worst cases known. The following is from an article from the Edmonton Journal. And I'll have a link to it in the show notes. It was a pitch black and brutally cold when Swift Runner was led from his cell at Fort Saskatchewan Jail to start his long last walk towards the gallows that awaited outside in the swirling snow. Swift Runner, or Ka Ki Si Kuchin, had been told to prepare for death and seemed to have heeded the advice. He walked confidently into the yard, seemingly much calmer than many of those who were there to watch him die. Most of the 60 people gathered near the gallows had never seen a hanging, and they were nervous and anxious about what was going to happen. 
Sheriff Edward Richard had been delayed by the snow and weather and was flustered by his late arrival at the fort. The hangman, too, appeared nervous. The execution had been ordered to take place at 7.30 a.m. on December the 20th, 1879. With less than half an hour left to go, it was discovered that the crowd had taken the trap from the gallows and burned it as kindling, and that the hangman had forgotten to bring straps to bind the prisoner's arms. As the sheriff and hangman rushed to get the scaffold ready again, Swift Runner sat near one of the fires that had been lighted nearby, joking and chatting, snacking on pemmican, the thick noose hanging around his neck. I could kill myself with the tomahawk, he offered, and save the hangman further trouble. Swift Runner was well known around the Fort Saskatchewan settlement, a striking six foot three with a strapping build and what one policeman called as ugly and evil looking a face as I've ever seen. He had once been known as smart and trustworthy, a reputation that won him a job as a guide for the Northwest Mounted Police. But as one newspaper story would later point out, his contact with white men, however, had ruined him. That ruination came in part from an inordinate fondness for the whiskey that was smuggled into the area disguised as medicine. Swift Runner was known to be an ugly customer to meet upon a spree, so ugly that some called him the terror of the whole region. The police sent Swift Runner back to his tribe, where he caused so much trouble, he turned the Cree camps into little hells, and was eventually turned out from his community altogether, retreating to the wilderness with his wife, mother, brother, and six children. The police started to hear stories in the spring. A Cree chief said Swift Runner had turned cannibal, and a hunter reported that Swift Runner's entire family had been killed in the woods. But a squad of officers who went out to investigate couldn't find Swift Runner or his family. Instead, Swift Runner went to the police himself in the spring, telling them that his wife had committed suicide and the rest of the family had died of starvation. But the officers noticed that Swift Runner didn't look un underfed. The prisoner arrived at our camp in the spring and did not look very poor or thin as if he had been starving, one noted. Suspicious of the story, police traveled with Swift Runner to his family's camp in the wilderness north of Fort Saskatchewan. After days of searching, they found the remnants of a campfire with piles of bones and human skulls scattered nearby. Some of the bones were dry and hollow, empty even of marrow. A small moccasin had been stuffed inside the skull of Swift Runner's mother, a beating needle still sticking out of the unfinished work. Swift Runner was tried for murder and cannibalism by a jury that included three, quote, English-speaking Cree half-breeds, unquote, four men well up in the Cree language, and a Cree man who translated the proceedings. A leading Cree English scholar was also brought in to observe the trial and ensure Swift Runner knew what was being said. The death sentence was to be the first legal hanging in the Canadian Northwest Territories, an area that includes what is now the province of Alberta. A scaffold was built especially for the execution, and an army pensioner was paid $50 to serve as hangman. Swift Runner declined to spend the night before his execution with a priest. The white man has ruined me, he said. I don't think their God could amount to much. Some said Swift Runner had developed a taste for cannibalism years earlier, when he was forced to eat the remains of a starved hunting partner to save himself. Others said he had been possessed by the Wendigo, a flesh-eating spirit that tormented him and gave him nightmares. Two hours after Swift Runner was led to the gallows, the execution was finally ready to proceed. He was allowed to eat one final pound of pemmican before he was pinioned tightly with rope 
and taken to the scaffold, where a thick black hood was placed over his head. The trap fell, and Swift Runner went down with fearful force. There being a drop of five feet, the Daily Evening Mercury reported, he died without a struggle. The body was cut down in an hour and buried in the snow outside the fort. Here is another shorter version of the story that highlights a few other facts. Swift Runner was a trader with the Hudson Bay's company, who was married and the father of six children. In 1875, he served as a guide for the Northwest Mounted Police. During the winter of 1878 to 1879, Swift Runner and his family were starving along with numerous other Cree families. His eldest son was the first to die of starvation, and at some point, Swift Runner succumbed to Wendigo psychosis. Though emergency food supplies were available at the Hudson Bay Company post some 25 miles away, Swift Runner did not attempt to travel there. Rather, he killed the remaining members of his family and consumed them. He eventually confessed and was executed by authorities at Fort Saskatchewan. Now, a Wendigo also allegedly made a number of appearances near a town called Rousseau in northern Minnesota from the late 1800s through the early 1920s. Each time that it was reported, an unexpected death followed, and finally, it was seen no more. Another well-known case involving Wendigo psychosis was that of Jack Fiddler, an OG Cree chief and medicine man known for his powers at defeating Wendigos. Fiddler claimed to have defeated 14 Wendigos during his lifetime. Some of these creatures were said to have been sent by enemy shamans, and others were members of his own band who had been taken with the insatiable, incurable desire to eat human flesh. In the latter case, Fiddler was usually asked by family members to kill a very sick loved one before they turned Wendigo. Fiddler's own brother, Peter Flett, was killed after turning Wendigo when the food ran out on a trading expedition. Hudson Bay Company traders and missionaries were well aware of the Wendigo legend, though they often explained it as mental illness or superstition. Regardless, several incidents of people turning Wendigo and eating human flesh are documented in the records of the company. In 1907, Fiddler and his brother Joseph were arrested by the Canadian authorities for murder. Jack committed suicide, but Joseph was tried and sentenced to life in prison. He ultimately was granted a pardon, but died three days later in jail before receiving the news of his pardon. Among the Asibone, the Cree, and the Ojibwe, a satirical ceremonial dance is sometimes performed during times of famine to reinforce the seriousness of the Wendigo taboo. The frequency of Wendigo psychosis cases decreased sharply in the 20th century as Native Americans came into greater and greater contact with Western ideologies. However, Wendigo creature sightings are still reported, especially in northern Ontario near the cave of the Wendigo and around the town of Kenora, where it is, has been alleged to have been spotted by traders, trackers, and trappers for decades. There are many who still believe that the Wendigo roams the woods and prairies of northern Minnesota and Canada. Kenora, Ontario, Canada, has been given the title of the Wendigo capital of the world by many. Sightings of the creature in the area have continued well into the new millennium. The good news is that there are stories describing ways to kill a Wendigo. The bad news is that you're going to need a lot of silver. The chief weakness of a Wendigo traditionally is its heart. The beast reportedly has a heart made of solid ice. If you can get at the creature's heart with a silver blade or stake or bullet, then shatter the heart, then put the shattered heart bits in a silver box, then lock the box, and finally bury the box in a graveyard, then maybe, just maybe, the Wendigo will die. 
There are rumors of added steps like dismembering and cremating the body and scattering its ashes into several directions. The best way to win a fight with a Wendigo, though, is to avoid a Wendigo altogether. To accomplish this, it's recommended that you keep a roaring fire going to dissuade the icy monster. Barring this, there are always amulets and charms. Now, folks, amazingly for such a well-known creature, there is frustratingly few documented cases on the internet. Those three that I have outlined to you are generally repeated in one shape or form or another over and over, and that's about all you find. So I have gathered a few stories for you as well to just give you a bit more of a flavor of what the Wendigos purportedly do. Now, I can't vouch for any of these stories. Um, I found them online in places like Reddit, so they may be, you know, fiction. They may be true. Who knows? So the first comment I've got here is just a very short paragraph, and it says, I'm a Native American, and the stories I've been told of the Wendigo all include the detail of the Wendigo missing its feet from frostbite. In the stories, you can tell the Wendigo is around by its, quote, footprints, unquote, namely bloody holes in the snow caused by its fleshy stumps. The tracks can't be followed because the thing can move with the wind, and I was taught never to whistle at night as that attracts it. Lore and myth are really neat when passed down from word of mouth. So yeah, folks, uh, look, that's, imagine, you know, being out in the snow, cold wilderness, and you find these bloody holes in the ground. If you ever do, head the other way. <laughs> so here's another story here for you. When I was young, I often spent parts of summers with my grandmother in her home out in the country. It was my favorite place in the world, and I always look forward to the week-long stays of gardening, baking, late-night fires with s'mores and ghost stories, and enjoying having my grandmother all to myself. There was a pond not far from her house where I would sometimes go for a swim. It was home to quite a few frogs, and at night they made the most incessant noises. I complained to my grandmother only once, saying I couldn't enjoy the night breeze with all that racket. She took me on her lap and told me a story about an old man and a woman who lived near a lake. The old man couldn't stand the singing of the frogs, but his wife told him that they kept the Wendigo away, and to harm them would be unwise. Well, he didn't listen, and he set about methodically catching all the frogs on the lake. It was a process that took some time, but he did not stop until he had rid the lake of the pesky amphibians. That night, without the protection of the frogs, he and his wife were slaughtered by the Wendigo, a vicious, whip-like demon creature with elongated fingers ending in razor-sharp talons and rows of silver teeth as thin and keen as needles. I wrote it off as another of her ghost stories, though she seemed more serious than usual about it. I never complained about the frogs again, mostly because I grew to enjoy them and put the story out of my mind. In fact, I'd forgotten all about it until it came up this past spring in a Native American literature class I was taking in college. The mention of the Wendigo sparked that old memory of my grandmother's story. I thought she had made it up. I thought she had made up the word. I didn't realize there were stories about it originating in Algonquin legends. Eager to connect something from my childhood to the topic, I googled it, only to find that my grandmother had apparently been mistaken. There was nothing I could find about the story she had told me, 
nor any references of frogs providing protection from the Wendigo. In fact, the Wendigo of legends seem very little like my grandmother's version. They were said to be insatiable, craving human flesh, and sometimes created from the forms of people who had resorted to cannibalism to survive. Descriptions varied, but they sounded almost nothing like my grandmother's boogeyman version. I actually chuckled as I read it, almost a bit embarrassed by how badly my grandmother had messed up the original tale. I changed residences this summer, moving to a newly built 1,000 square foot on each side duplex on the edge of town. The other side is to be occupied by my landlady, who'd had the place built. However, she isn't scheduled to move the rest of her stuff in and begin living there for a couple of weeks. She's waiting for her lease to end. Even though my new place is only a few minutes from the edge of town, it feels much more isolated. I enjoyed the seclusion of my new home and proximity to a more natural setting. I'm surrounded by woods, and from my patio, I can even see a pond beyond that carefully landscaped lawn, which is meticulously carved out from the surrounding woodlands. Just like the pond near my grandmother's house, the frogs have put up a ferocious racket lately. I prefer not to pay to run my air conditioner if I can help it, so I have every window open to catch a breeze. That means that I can hear them as clearly as if I were standing on the water's edge. It took a few days to get used to the noise, but I'm fine now, just like I was those summers when I was young. In fact, the noise has been comforting to me during the stress of the move. Tonight, however, is different. I find myself standing in my living room, staring at where the pond is, though I can't see it in the dark. The air is eerily still and oppressively warm, but all my windows are shut, and I feel impossibly cold. I'd long since convinced myself that my grandmother's story had been a silly tale, a twisting of an old legend by irrelevant story storytellers. But for some reason, I have the most overwhelming sense of dread growing in the pit of my stomach. I don't know what to do. I'm trapped. Leaving my house means braving the wilderness beyond my home, but I don't know if I'm going to be safe in here either. The frogs have stopped singing. So, folks, uh, you know, that sounds very much like a story. Someone's written a bit of fiction. But uh, nonetheless, you know, um, things like this, uh, I always give them a healthy bit of respect. So I've got one last story here for you that I found that I'm going to read. Now, this one hits very close to home to me because... It uh, involves Idaho. So here we go. It says, first things first, this happened to me when I was around 10. I've lived in Idaho all my life and spent a lot of time outside or in the wilderness as a kid. My grandparents would take me camping and my older brother and I would always hike up whatever trails we could find to get a view of the sunset. On one of these occasions, something terrifying happened. We were up at a campsite I only know as Warm River. The river there never freezes over. And my brother and I were on a regular evening hike. There was an old tunnel bored through the mountain at one part of the trail, probably an old train tunnel. And we were walking through it when I heard something I've never, I'll never forget. After walking through probably two-thirds of the way through the tunnel, I heard a terrible screech at the end. We entered through. The screech wasn't like anything I've heard before. I've heard the screams of animals on dark and windy nights. I even think I've heard Bigfoot calls a few times, but never the metallic, grinding screech I heard that day. The point is, whatever the sound was, it did not sound natural in any capacity. I probably jumped five feet in the air when I heard it, 
and my brother shouted a few choice curses before shooing me quickly to the exit of the tunnel. At this point, my brother decided we should just continue walking and head back after whatever made the noise hopefully cleared out. We didn't have any firearms on us, so I was pretty upset. My brother reassured me we would be fine, and we made the walk back without incident. However, I didn't get any sleep that night, whether it was the, the thing that screeched at us or just my imagination. I heard things moving around the campsite the whole night, as well as whispers echoing through the darkness outside the trailer. I woke my brother up a few times to check out what it was, but he refused each time, telling me that it was probably just other campers staying up late and enjoying themselves. The rest of the trip was pretty normal. We packed up the following day and my life continued as normal. I was disconcerted but chalked what happened up as a harmless event that I must have been exaggerating in retrospect. A few weeks later, I went up to Pine Basin, an old ski lodge my family rented each year for family reunions. Here I would mess around with my cousins, our favorite activities being night games. We would play hide and seek, a game called Ghosts in the Graveyard, and other games like that. On one, on one instance, I was chosen to be the seeker for a, for a game of hide and seek. Because I was one of the younger cousins, I got a flashlight as an advantage. Normally, all the older cousins hid close to the lodge, and the older cousins hid in the nearby trees or at the base of the nearby mountains. As I was searching near the bottom of the mountain, I heard a familiar whistle up the mountain a bit. We would always whistle as a hint at our locations. It sounded like someone was hiding way up near a tree known as the underwater tree. Sorry, the underwear tree. You can guess why. So I began trekking up towards the whistle. As I climbed closer, I got an uneasy feeling in my stomach. I continued on warily and convinced myself that I would be fine. I hated walking in the night alone, but figured whoever I find would walk me back to the lodge. As I neared the tree, I noticed that it was deathly silent. This alerted me that something was very wrong, because you could always hear the adults having fun back at the lodge. I was anxious to hurry back, so I called out, I found you, Scott. I thought the whistle was my older cousin Scott's. Come back down with me. I got no reply, but I wasn't planning on waiting. As I began walking back towards the path, I heard a voice call. You almost had me. So I ran back up to investigate. I flashed my light in the branches of the tree and saw a monstrosity that was not my cousin. It looked like a poorly drawn stick figure made into a human with its emaciated figure and lifeless eyes. I remember its face looked like the skin on its head was being pulled from behind. It had torn and stretched features. As soon as I saw the creature, I screamed, I dropped the flashlight, and I ran down to the lodge. The entire time I ran, I was overcome by an overpowering smell, and I could hear the thing running after me. As I approached the camp, I saw a few people, my cousins, at the bottom of the mountain waiting for me. I was crying and shaking, and they took me inside. I told my dad what happened, but my cousins all said that they didn't see anything following me. The adults kept us inside for the night, and I kept hearing sounds drifting in from the mountains. I never played night games after that happened and was always terrified that my cousins would listen to my wouldn't listen to my warnings. Ever since that night I have always felt uneasy up in those mountains. I used to be really religious and figured it was a demon of some kind trying to kill me or something like that. But those mountains have never felt the same after that incident. A few years ago the game Until Dawn became really popular and I watched a walkthrough of it on YouTube. When the Wendigo first appeared in game, I got chills down my spine. It was exactly what I saw. 
and I did a ton of research on them. I figure someone must have gotten snowed in at that old lodge and resorted to cannibalism, but that doesn't explain what happened at Warm River. I still hear that screech from time to time. It never occurred to me until watching Until Dawn that they might have might be from the same thing, and it scares the hell out of me every time. I heard it earlier tonight, and that's why I decided to finally write my story down. So, look, folks, uh, um, it's a bit disconcerting to me. I don't live in Idaho anymore, but, uh, yeah, it's not something that I would want to encounter. Uh, I can definitely tell you that. Now, give you a, you know, a few of the possible explanations that have been suggested. So it says that, uh, you know, many of the American Indian tribes, they shared similar dialects and, importantly, the life experiences inherent in a life spent in the punishing climate of the North. Starvation and exposure to the elements were often real dangers. And as with any culture, fears gave birth to stories and mythological personifications of possible threats. In the same way that concerns about the destructive potential of nuclear technology brought Godzilla to the modern world, a very real fear of desperation may have led to the proliferation of stories around the Wendigo. The legend of the Wendigo has long been associated with real-life problems like insatiable greed, selfishness, and violence. It's also linked to the many cultural taboos against these negative actions and behaviors. Basically, the word Wendigo can also function as a symbol for gluttony and the image of excess. As Basil Johnson has written, the idea of turning Wendigo is a very real possibility when the word refers to self-destruction, rather than literally becoming a monster in the forest. These stories might represent the indigenous people's response to the horrific violence unleashed on them by non-native people. In fact, many anthropologists believe that the concept of a Wendigo only developed after the native people had contact with the Europeans. But what about, about those scary Wendigo stories that supposedly affected real people? Some anthropologists also argue that Wendigo stories, especially those involving Wendigo accusations, are linked to stress within the Native American communities. The local tension leading up to such ac accusations may even be comparable to the fear that preceded the Salem witch trials. However, in the case of the Native American communities, most of the stress was due to a dwindling amount of resources, not to mention extermination of food in the area. Under those circumstances, who could blame them for having a fear of starvation? Just about the only thing scarier might be what one would do if the starvation became too much to handle. So folks, what are we left with here? It is a topic that, as I say, it is frustratingly hard to track down cases that you know are more than just stories on the internet, aside from a basic few. As with so many myths and legends, we often find that there is a kernel of truth. Now, what are we left with here? Is it simply people stuck in a wilderness environment, stuck in the snow and cold, and they have no choice but to turn to cannibalism? Or is it something more? Who knows? I always keep my mind open to such things. I do remember reading stories about similar creatures as a boy. I don't know if they were the Wendigo, but uh, I've definitely heard stories of a similar creature in the Pacific Northwest. And again, of all the things that I could run into in the, in the forest in winter, it's one of the last things that I would want to deal with. So I hope that you've enjoyed that. I hope that you've found the Wendigo interesting. 
I'm sorry there's not more out there about it, folks. Like I say, there's lots of fiction. There's not a whole lot of cases and a whole lot of instances that can be corroborated past one person's story here or there. Now, the next program I'll be doing will be a UFO topic. I'm not sure right now. There's a newer story that I've heard about that I just need to find out if there's enough information out there to do a program on it. Um, now, I don't know if there is or not. If that isn't possible, if there's not enough information on it, uh, like I say, I don't want to just do a 10-minute story arc or something for you. If not, then I'm going to cover over the Cisco Grove case which happened in California, and that is quite a fascinating case, folks. That's one of those that uh, really makes you wonder what's going on uh, with this whole UFO phenomenon. Aside from that, folks, um, I've had a few people ask me again, you know, what would I do if I went back to work? Will I continue the show? Look, um, I don't see myself going back to work in the near future. Um, I wish that I could. I really do. Um, the bills are piling up. But, um, yeah, the economy isn't great right now, and now William needs the home care. But if I do, if I do go back to work and I can't swing doing a show every week or doing two shows every week, I'll do my best to keep you in the loop. I'll keep you updated. So aside from that, my friends, I hope that you've, had, uh, you've enjoyed this program. I hope you have a great week wherever you are in the world. And as always, I'd just like to leave you with a quote from Art Bell. And that quote is, a mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter which does reside within may not be reached. Take care, folks, and I'll talk to you soon.